Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose. And what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I'm so grateful to welcome two women physician leaders making amazing contributions, Paria Hasuri and Alka Kaneya. Join us next for the conversation. My first guest is Dr. Paria Hasuri, who recently published her book, Found in Transition, sharing her personal evolution as a mother during her child's gender change. Paria is a pediatrician in Los Angeles, and her background as an Iranian immigrant who grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh prompted a deep reflection on her parenting journey as her teenage daughter Ava transitioned from male to female. Her essays and writings are terrific punctuations of her tireless advocacy for the transgender community. Honestly, I've very seldom been around someone whose authentic, compassionate honesty, mixed with a poise to equally share vulnerability and joy, are so palpable. We started our chat by talking about how she found the creativity to capture her thoughts through writing. You know, I never really thought that I may have a creative side to myself until I started playing with writing in the the last uh, seven to eight years, I would say. And so publishing... And I've written some articles and, you know, blog, but publishing a book feels like a big deal. Um, and feels like sort of the creative stamp of approval, I think. Right. <laughs> um, and so that definitely gives me a lot of satisfaction. And I think, you know, the subject matter, I'm obviously so passionate about the subject matter. Right. You know, it's not just writing a book, but writing something that I really do think will make a big change and will mean a lot to so many people. And, you know, I'm already hearing from people who, who are reading it and what it's sure. meant to them. So, you know, kind of combining the, uh, the personal part of just getting to do this, you know, creative thing with the importance and impact of what, you know, what I had to put in the book. Um, it's, it feels pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, growing up in, in, Iranian immigrant family um, in Pittsburgh without a whole lot of brown faces around you as a child. Um, Did you or your family have any notable experiences or backdrop or exposure to others in the trans community or trans people that you knew um, at all? Can you reflect on that a little bit? I had zero exposure to trans people, really, I would say, uh, pretty much until my daughter came out. I mean, almost, almost zero. I think any exposure I had uh, as an adult was through the media. I mean, as a, as a child, I don't think sure. I even had any media exposure. As an adult, I would say it was uh, pretty much all through the media. And, you know, at the time that she came out, it was it was pretty negative, the media representation. Right. I'm sure that as a pediatrician, I had children in my practice that were trans. It's, it's not possible that I wouldn't have, but I don't think if, if there were, it must, their parents must not have 
you know, supported or encouraged it or it must have gotten suppressed because, you know, in the last couple of years, I have some some patients who, you know, are probably, you know, trans and the parents are, you sure. know, talking to me uh, about it. But these conversations were not happening before. So or maybe not as obvious, um, for sure, right? I mean, I remember uh, going to India as a child and visiting, seeing uh, members of the trans community, the Hijra community, who were um, certainly visible, but it's not like my family and I were sharing a lot of conversation about that. When you were growing up, or, or even as a younger adult, um, were there any references? Did you have any kind of, um, even reflecting back, thoughts that this actually does happen indeed in the Iranian community or in the Brown community that you maybe grew up in? It just was suppressed. I can't think of any instances in the in the Iranian community. Uh, I mean, when I think back to my exposure, I mean, certainly I saw movies um, where there was a trans person who was usually not, you know, depicted in a positive light. And I don't even know that I really ever thought about it. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, I in I don't think in the Iranian community that I I really don't think I had any exposure. I um I don't think you know I've talked to my parents. Did they know anybody? Right. They said no. <laughs> you know, yeah. my in laws. Uh, they didn't you know know anyone. So I really don't think I had any in you know in in our culture. Uh, interestingly, not interestingly, I don't know what the right term would be, but. Um, you know, after, um, you know, in with with the Islamic revolution, you know, they're not accepting of gays and, le you know, lesbians at all. Sure. But they actually do think, you know, right now do think that trans is, is okay. Yeah. So gay and lesbian is not okay. You know, um, and that that's an interesting piece because a lot of structural bias or even um, normatives create that sort of suppression, right, in the trans community. And, and I imagine this can be magnified by cultural norms, whether that's by religion or the culture that we grow up in. Was this even more additive? And it sounds like it was being in an immigrant family where this not only it's a culture that's removed, but now displaced um, into an American culture. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the hard part really was I didn't, it wasn't so much a cultural bias against being trans, but it was just feeling like I was completely blindsided and that I didn't know my child at all. Yeah. Um, and then the part I, that culturally was hard for me is that, you know, I, I grew up in a very white neighborhood. Uh, we, you know, moved back to the U.S. in 1983, which was shortly after the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah. Um, I knew what it was like to be on the outside, and I, mm. and I had spent most of my uh, teen years, you know, really junior high, high school, all of that, very much alone and isolated and in my bedroom. Yeah. And that was not something I wanted for my child. And my you know, one of my fears, obviously, when she came out was that she was going to be bullied and she was not going to be able to make friends and she was going to be the ultimate outsider. Right. And so I definitely imposed a lot of my 
my fear and resulting from just insecurities of my own background of, you know, growing up uh, sort of as an outsider, you know, onto her. And, you know, my experience had been this and my experience was probably, I thought, going to be a fraction of what her experience was, was going to be like. And so there was a lot of fear for, for what her future would be like. Does that fear or the element of how that fear manifested was that born from, in some ways, the surprise part of this? I think a lot of it was from the surprise. And a lot of it was because I didn't know any trans people. So if you don't have exposure to uh, trans people, you know, who are successful living, you know, full lives, then it's this big, you know, almost like the boogeyman you know like you yeah. just you know, it really you don't you don't know what you know what it is and in in 2017 99% of what was in the media about trans was still very negative that has changed a lot in the last one to two years um you know I talked to everyone about the documentary disclosure that uh, Laverne Cox did on the network sure. And, um, which really shows you how terrible the media has represented trans people. And that's really just changed in the last year or two, just, just starting to change, you know? Um, and we're seeing, you know, just a handful of trans people, you know, in politics now and, uh, you know, just, you know, hearing more about uh, their successes. And, you know, if I had had many examples of trans people who were living full lives and, you know, thriving and, 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 and successful, there would not have been nearly as much fear. But I didn't, I didn't have that, you know. And I wonder if, you know, again, it just this, the idea of the fear being born from something that's unknown, again, just leads us back to more awareness and more education being the answer. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Paria Hasuri. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk a little bit more about the impact of her journey on her personal and professional life. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Chef Sanjeev Kapoor. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Okay, welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Paria Hasuri. Paria, um, you're a pediatrician by training. And, you know, there's been such a strong movement in the last several years to really recognize adverse childhood experiences and offer support um, in our profession and also to do so in the community. How has this issue really resonated for you in the context of your story? Well, I think... You know, even even just in terms of myself, <laughs> you, you know, forget my daughter. Even if I think about myself, you know, uh, being bullied in the fifth grade, I recognize that that impacted me for the next 30-something years. Um, sure. And it was really something that I finally started dealing, really dealing with the impact of it in, in my 40s. Um, and, and then once my daughter uh, came out, you, you know, dealt with it a little bit further because I realized that it was affecting how I was, you know, par- how I was parenting her as well. Uh, I think in terms of children, I mean, we know, well, especially with, with trans kids, we know what a difference it makes when, when they're supported by their families versus not. We know that for trans teens, um, their risk of suicide attempt is three times higher if they are not supported 
and their risk of suicide is the same as that of cisgender teens if they're mm. supported by their family. I mean, that, so that just says- Striking if, almost. If you support a trans teen, they're going to be not any different than a cisgender teen. I mean, that, yeah. that's just staggering, you know? Uh, so I think, you know, it's, I think we need to have these conversations. Um, people need to have more exposure. Uh, we need to be, get better at recognizing what are the signs of, you know, being trans or what are the signs of trauma in children. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a, there's so much that we don't know, but, um, you know, th th for example, there's a lot of overlap between autism and ADHD and, and being trans. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an area we, we can definitely study. There's um, a lot with, the, you know, more um, sensory processing difficulty mm -hmm. in some trans people. Yeah. Like, why is that? Well, th clearly that, that has to be some sort of, you know, <laughs> discomfort, you know, with, with their sure. body touch or you know who who they are and these are just patterns and things that we're just starting to see now so that doesn't mean i mean there's so many children that have sensory processing you know right. uh, disorders or difficulties so that doesn't mean that every time we see one we should think that they're trans sure. but you know there are there are patterns and things that we should keep in the back of our minds when we are seeing children in which something isn't right and we're not sure what that thing is that you know isn't isn't right um i'm not sure if i may have veered off the question no, but. i think i think what you're um you know a lot of what you're saying is sort of connecting the dots a little bit and mm -hmm. making these signals um as part of an ongoing conversation that not only you're going to have with a family but that hopefully families are able to inform themselves about and have with each other um and i think that you know everything that you're mentioning is so important for us to just simply become much more aware of whether we're in the medical profession or not. Yeah. Um, and, and I think your, your book and your story are highlighting this for sure. This may be relatively anecdotal, but my experience so far um, being an Indian American and certainly for a lot of brown families or definitely brown immigrant families, um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of us rushing out to seek therapy or counseling. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly shy away from from that, um, you know, what's your message about this uh, aspect of the journey, particularly for families who may be trying to connect the dots and in fact, discovering their own journey? Yeah, I mean, I think therapy is definitely essential, not just for the child, but, you know, for the parents who are going through this. I think support groups, this is another thing, you know, with um, in, uh, you know, immigrant brown families, you know, you don't tell anyone your business, you don't right. talk about what's going on. So you're certainly not going to go sit in a support group with other families and yeah. tell them everything that's going on. I mean, that I put our entire life in a book is such a, <laughs> so for my, for my mom, is such a foreign concept of like, why yeah. one needs, needs to do that. Sure. Um, so I, for me, going to a support group of, with other families that were raising trans kids and young adults 
was so instrumental in making the difference that, for me to be able to start accepting my daughter and, you know, moving through it and becoming an advocate and, and thriving, you know, all the things. I mean, really the support group was incredibly helpful, you know, get, getting the right therapist. Um, and so I think, you know, just, yeah, I mean, therapy is something that everybody benefits from. It doesn't automatically put any sort of label on you. I think right. in immigrant bound populations, we're also, you know, very, uh, we don't like labels. We mm -hmm. don't like labels. We don't like sharing. We don't like any <laughs> health yeah. uh, diagnoses, <laughs> you know? Well, and I mean, it's it, it sort of, um, it's a, a vehicle for vulnerability, right? You have this label of either shame or guilt or that either you've done something wrong or you're doing something wrong. And if it's not part of perhaps the story or the narrative that you're trying to write for yourself as an immigrant family. And I think the message that, um, that I certainly have been able to um, hear from this conversation and on top of that from just dealing with lots of families uh, altogether, I think is um, to absolutely embrace it um, and find obviously the right messaging for it, but, um, you know, to do exactly what you just said, which is recognize those dots and try and connect them and, and use the help that you can with it. You've been talking now to so many um, families and people uh, about your story. Um, speaking of surprises, have you been surprised by um, any of the um, stories that people have shared with you about um, how your stories resonated with them? Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I've been getting, so I was so nervous about how this book was going to be received because I think I say some to what to me sound like terrible things because yeah. I'm very, very, very honest in, in there about yeah. my initial reactions about, you know, there's one line in particular um, that is so horrifying for me to admit where I actually, you know, think to myself, you know, this would have been easier if she'd had leukemia, because if she had leukemia, the doctors would tell me this is the chemo and, you know, yeah. we would heal. And right. that's, I mean, that is a horrible thought to, you know, say it would be easier if your child had leukemia right. than if your child is trans. But I, that's what I thought and I wrote it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I was very worried about how it would be received. And I've had so many parents of trans kids who are reading it and who have reached out to me privately and said, you wrote down, it, it's like you wrote down exactly the thoughts that I have. Um, thank you for writing it. Thank you for, the other thing that kind of surprised me um, was people said, thank you for showing other people how much we agonize over these decisions. Because I mm. think- People yeah. see us on the outside, you know, supporting our children, being advocates, posting pro, you know, trans rights things, right. taking pictures, you know, with our children and posting it on Facebook and that, and, you know, supporting them in their transition. And that doesn't mean that internally you're not, you know, you're not agonizing over these decisions that you're making or that, you know, these aren't that you're not at the same, you're simultaneously, you know, going through this very internal difficult time while you're supporting your child. And I think people who don't really know 
you know, they see you supporting your child and they're like, oh yeah, people these days, they're, you know, their kids come out that they're trans and they're like, okay, yeah, let's go to the doctor and get hormones right. and surgery. Yeah. That, no parent is, yeah. is doing that. And so that's been one of the things is thank you for showing people that even though we support our children, we are not making these decisions lightly. This is what's happening behind the scenes. And so hearing all that, I mean, even, you know, um, I have got a little goosebumps, you know, even myself because of that, because, you know, it is really hard. And um, so for for, for someone to say, thank you for doing that for me, I mean, that's kind of priceless. To me. I, I think the authenticity and the genuine struggle that you talk about is is powerful, um, and it's probably uh, for those parents and for for anyone who is empathetic and and can really sort of put themselves in in that position. Hopefully, it's also resonating pretty loudly. My guest today is Paria Hasuri. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more with her. So stay tuned. Hi, this is Jonita Gandhi, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. So welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. And my guest today is Paria Hasori. Paria, I wanted to actually ask you about the authenticity that you've shared in this book. You, you've shared such an open and honest journey of going from the grief that you write about um, to being a champion and an advocate and, and all the ups and downs along the way. Um, how did you derive um, strength from within your, your own family or your community or from other sort of brown voices of support? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've always, when I started writing, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago, I felt like, I didn't ever really consider myself a writer or feel like I could write, but I felt like I could tell the truth. Like I've always been a truth teller and that people want to read the truth, you know, and, and see the, the truth. And I think whenever I would watch somebody else be really authentic and, you know, give the whole story and, and you could see it, that's when I, I would be drawn in and I would identify with it. And, and that's when change would happen for me. And I mean, obviously I have a lot of, you know, my friends were all very supportive. I, I mean, most importantly, my husband was supportive and Ava was okay with her story being told. Sure. Um, and I think the other thing is that when you see your daughter being, you know, that strong, um, it's hard not to, you know, at least try to follow in her strength. Did the Iranian community, overall broader sort of brown communities, mm-hmm. did, did you find solace or strength in, in those groups as well? I think in terms of the larger brown community, I'm not sure that I necessarily had as much support, but now that the book is out um, and people read it, you know, they do you know, everybody thanks you for, for being honest and everybody in the Brown community, I think who is, um, you know, of sort of more our generation, like agrees that there shouldn't be, you know, there's like secrecy and silence and shame about 
normal things that our children do, you know, right. and that normal things being, you know, even being something as simple as, you know, they get trouble in school or, you know, they date the wrong person or they sneak out of the house or whatever yeah. to, you know, coming out as trans. I mean, sure. you know, that, that, you know, that there shouldn't be secrecy and, and shame around, around whatever our children, are, you know, are going through. Um, so they, I think they appreciate that. They recognize that it's, you know, different that I'm being so open about it. Mm -hmm. um, and they, and now that it's out, they, they definitely appreciate it. And I wonder if that um, generational impact is certainly part of being a second generation um, Brown person whose parents are immigrants. And uh, certainly that, that has resonated probably differently for those in our generation, or even those who are younger than us. Um, you mentioned earlier that your daughter really was a source of great strength and um, such uh, such pride in in taking on this story. Um, what lessons, uh, in fact, do you directly learn from her? Have you learned from her that sort of give you more inspiration as you kind of take this forward? You know, I think she's taught me to be unapologetically yourself and. She is so certain of who she is. Um, and she was so certain of who she was at, you know, 14. I mean, you know, there was a time where, you know, we were having a conversation and, you know, we were talking about whether or not she'd be able to have biological children one day. And she said, well, one way or another, one day I'm going to be a mom. And, you know, when she's used the word mom instead of parent, I mean, yeah. just so sure that this was going to happen for her. Um, I mean, you know, then you, you know, I just realized that I need to be certain about who I am, yeah. that I need to stop having this little bit of fear and insecurity and other things that I was still, you know, carrying, you know, carrying with me. Um, she's so, she's so proud of who she is that, yeah. you know, you know, that I felt like I need to also take ownership and be, you know, more proud of who I am. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's, you know, so many, so many things that she, that she taught me, but I think really that's that sense of being sure in her identity um, was probably what I needed to see the most to be able to support her. And, and, you know, what I learned from the most as well. You write so um, eloquently and, and certainly, um, some poignant advice about parents being more optimistic, both for and with their children. Um, and I think this probably goes back to this idea of, of empathy and what kind of power it has. But are there practical methods to couple this optimism with more love and less, less fear? Yeah, I mean, I kind of just, you know, my most practical advice would be, you know, if a parent if a child comes to you and says, I want to do this, or this is who I am, or whatever they news they tell you, and you're trying to make a decision, are you holding them back because you're scared of what's going on in the outside world um, or, or not? You know? And so if, she, you know, if my child comes to me and says, I want to wear a dress to school, for example, something as simple as that. 
am I saying no because I don't want her to wear a dress to school? Or am I saying no because I'm afraid she's going to get bullied and, you know, that that's legitimate. Sure. Um, so, but if I'm making the decision based on fear, but not because it goes against what I truly believe. Is it okay for my child to wear a dress? Do I believe it's okay for my child to express herself in whatever way she wants to? Yes, I do believe that. So if I say no, I'm letting fear that make the decision versus right. what I know to be, you know, the truth. So I, you know, I just think, pretend there is no outside world. <laughs> there is no, you know, politics. There's no fear. Um, and make the decision based on love or just think about how you take care of a new newborn and you minute by minute assess what they need today. You're not, you know, projecting way into the future. You certainly wouldn't let anybody on the outside tell you what to do, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And really try to parent that way every day. Is that a hundred percent practical? No. Is it realistic to be scared of your child wearing a dress, you know, to school? Yes. But, but realize where the decisions are coming from and see what you can do to incorporate more, you know, love leading you in terms of making decisions and what you know to be right versus yeah. what you're scared of. You spoke earlier about your daughter's strength and the pride that she has how would you perhaps uh, share uh, practical advice for parents whose kids may not have the same sense of, of great self-esteem and the amount of uh, joy that perhaps they are expressing and they might not necessarily be in the same place? I, I would say the number one thing you can do is be optimistic for them rather than be, pes be, be a pessimist and then just feed into that cycle. So, you know, so if you know, your child, you know, comes to you and, you know, they think they're trans, but they are worried that their life is going to be more difficult. You know, you shouldn't say, yeah, well, you're going to have a difficult life and not get a good job. And yeah, this is going to come with being trans. You should, you know, you, you find positive examples, you know, in the, in the media of, you know, trans people doing incredible things. And you tell them, this is who you can be if you believe in yourself and, and if we support you. And, you know, you can use that for, for anything. I mean, it's easiest for me to come up with sure. examples of, you know, being trans. But, you know, when your child is not sure, um, rather than being pessimistic, you know, to be optimistic, be positive, um, you know, try to, you try to give them the strength they don't have it if, if they don't have it. Um, rather than trying to, um, shelter and protect them thinking that that's, you know, that's going to be the right way to, to do it. Priya, we, we all could probably use your optimism and your wisdom in a year like 2020. Thank you so, so much for being a guest on our show. We really enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back and join us again. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hi, this is Sanjay Saran. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to our station. When I met my next guest, Dr. Alka Kanea, I couldn't help but think about so many intersections that she personifies. She's a physician and a professor at the University of California in San Francisco, and an expert who's made significant contributions in studying diabetes and heart disease in the South Asian community. 
Alka was born in India and grew up in California, so her important work represents a blend of generations, cultures, and practices as she seeks a better understanding of risk and health for South Asians. While it's not a shocking surprise that there may be a doctor or two among us, I asked her to reflect on her own unique pathway into medicine. I guess the atypical part is I'm the first person in my family to ever go into medicine. And it was um, probably for a very personal reason that I decided huh. to go into medicine. And that's uh, my, my brother has an intellectual disability. And uh -huh. that was the reason that we actually immigrated from India to the U.S. And oh, wow. made me really interested in, uh, you know, all things medicine because we were always interfacing with healthcare. And uh, so it was a personal journey. It was not something that, um, you know, everyone in the family did. And so it's, it's, right. it's a little bit different. Yeah. Well, and, and in that same um, spirit, was that sort of a natural progression for you in helping to, of course, see your brother's um, situation both unfold and then also caring for your brother? Um, was that, did it feel natural or was there some steps in between there that you had to actually either learn about or go through to get to where you are? Yeah, there definitely were steps. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I didn't go blindly into this. And so through through high school and college, I remember just really wanting to know more about this field and being kind of wary about it because, um, you know, hearing good and bad about healthcare and medicine in the United States. And so I did spend a lot of time just really checking out the field, talking to people and, and working as volunteers and, um, yeah, and uh, I knew that I was going to end up in a kind of a internal medicine type field that's broader and more cerebral, more thinking and cognitive. It's one of the cognitive specialties in medicine. Right. But, uh, and that was really, I think, because of, you know, having the experience with my brother uh, with an undiagnosed condition and really having to work with many different specialists and generalists to understand what was happening. I think um, having to go through that journey on a personal level or even on the patient level probably informed you of a lot of what the system was like. And particularly because of your family experience with this, did that change or uh, make a difference for you in the way that it was communicated or, or the way that you feel now as a communicating physician? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's you know, key in communicating with um, patients of different cultures and to really be sensitive about that. And you know, even with people who can speak English and communicate fairly well in the English language, there are so many subtle layers of, you know, cultural nuance that can be missed. And it's, it makes you be humble and, and want to, you know, know more and do your best when you come at it from the other side of the, the physician's desk. Well, so you grew up partially in India and here in uh, the United States and California. Yeah. Um, given that backdrop, how has your South Asian or Indian background informed some of your personal values, particularly through your journey? Um, and are there elements of your daily life now that you would say are, are kind of in uniquely Indian? Yeah, no, I feel like I am very much bicultural. Um, I've spent most of my um, I guess my uh, adult life definitely in, in the U.S. and also most of my childhood, but there's always been back and forth connections with India. I actually took a year off in medical school and I worked in different clinics around Nepal and India and just, you know, saw healthcare at many different levels there. Um, 
So, but there are there are a lot of um, Indian traditions or South Asian traditions that I hold, you know, pretty close to me. My parents live in the East Bay, not more than 45 minutes away from me. And so I, I see them almost on a weekly basis now. And, um, you know, there are a lot of cultural ties that I that I keep. I play tablas, I, um, I oh, sing. Wow. And so there's a lot of Indian culture in my daily life. I make chai every morning from scratch, yeah. you know, and I practice yoga almost like every other day. So right. those things are, you know, uh, part of me and part of my identity now. But I do feel like I walk in both cultures equally. I wonder if that, um, because some of these things that you mentioned are sort of iconic or almost timeless and you know, for you, are they the foundational aspects of kind of who you are? And how does that maybe come out uh, when you interact with your patients? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think I, I, I do, you know, uh, I do reveal things about my background and my culture to patients if they ask. I don't put it up front and center. Um, I, I practice medicine at UC San Francisco and San Francisco doesn't have a whole, you know, a large South Asian population that most of the South Asians live, as you know, in the East Bay or in the South Bay. I do in my practice have maybe, you know, 10 to 20 South Asians. And so in, in those um, interactions, I am willing to share. I am willing to talk a little bit more about, you know, going into detail about diet and religion and other factors that may be at play in their health and how they view, you know, their health in general. Well, when you're interacting with patients of just about any background, sort of pervasive through the American culture now are possibly examples of South Asian influences or even South Asian, these South Asian sort of icons and, and perhaps even their benefits. So are there examples of lifestyle, net positive and health promoting practices that in fact are uniquely South Asian that either come up in your practice or that you're reminded about when you're interacting with patients? Yeah, so I mean, I'll give you two examples that are concrete. One is yoga um, and the effects of, you know, yoga on stress and sleep and even on diabetes. I had a NIH grant um, about a decade ago to test yoga in people with prediabetes, so people who were mm -hmm. mostly overweight and sedentary and not doing any kind of exercise, had prediabetes, and we put them through a restorative yoga intervention versus a control group uh, that was getting stretched. And we actually found major benefits on their fasting glucose levels that it improved their prediabetes with the yoga. And so yoga being so, you know, um, uh, so commonplace now in the yeah. United States, especially in the Bay Area, um, that it's easy to talk about and, and then having evidence that it actually does help. It does help prevent diabetes and that's really powerful. And mm -hmm. so that's one, um, you know, I guess a concrete example. The second is certain um, spices that are ritually used in uh, Indian or South Asian cooking that have now come into, you know, favor. Um, turmeric, um, then right. ginger, um, garlic. I mean, these are, these are spices or... Um, or vegetables, uh, roots that we have been using for, you know, generations and yeah. have some health promoting benefits. And there are some studies now being done looking at cognitive effects at memory, at um, inflammation, at aging. And so, you know, there's, there's 
a, a growing body of literature. But um, I think that that's, you know, that's kind of interesting because these are Ayurvedic um, yeah. uh, tenets of health and, and they do, you know, apply now here and, and you know, globally. So it, it's nice to be able to translate some of these things from um, my, you know, origins, my, uh, my home to uh, practice. You would think that um, communicating as a South Asian physician uh, some of these tenets and, and principles that are so deeply uh, based in, in Indian philosophy or Indian medicine um, mm -hmm. would come easy. Do you ever find, in fact, barriers to that? Or do you find ever find challenges to that being someone who has in some ways kind of grown up or, or been around some of these philosophies um, or, or does it just, is it just that much easier because you're a South Asian physician? I mean, I think it depends on the level of, um, uh, where the barriers are. I can tell you that that yoga study that I mentioned was the number one hardest paper that I've ever had to get published because there yeah. was like, there is, you know, scientific, um, I guess, uh, scrutiny and disbelief about some of these, you know, more sure. world practices as having, you know, any major benefits on health. Um, maybe because there haven't been well done studies in the past, maybe that, you know, there's, um, there's a whole um, commercialized system promoting them as well. And so, right. so, you know, to break through those barriers and say, no, I mean, this is what we found doing a really rigorous study. And, uh, you know, it took me like 13 different journals to get that published and i mean that was like i have never experienced that in my life um, your so perseverance is to be celebrated there right <laughs> yeah yeah well and and i mean i think that uh for the academic and the rigor that it takes to actually pursue uh a scientific study like that it's probably have an easier audience in the lay population Absolutely. where yoga is certainly yeah. that much more ubiquitous or at least accepted yeah, um, and hopefully that's a good that's a good pathway for you then. Yeah, I know. So that that uh, the findings were published in Yoga Journal and in Oprah Magazine well before right. I got into uh, a peer reviewed journal. Yes, but I think that you know, as you mentioned, right? There's the there's the balance of that. The idea that it's um, trustworthy because it's been scrutinized by uh, a group of your peers, and at the same time coming from someone with experience who is South Asian hopefully also engenders that trust. My guest today is Alka Kaneya on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of her work in the South Asian community. Stay tuned. This is Karen David, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. So welcome back everyone. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dharndekar, and my guest this evening is Dr. Alka Kaneya. Alka, I wanted to actually um, take our audience through some of the journey that you've experienced. Um, what compelled you as a physician to start studying health risk in our own community? Um, great question. Um, a lot of it was a, a personal um, impression that, you know, uh, seeing both of my grandfathers suffer from diabetes and heart disease and have you know really uh, significant uh, debility from their uh, disability from their heart problems that was um, very close to home but also as a, a medicine resident at UC San Francisco 
my clinic was full of patients with diabetes and heart disease. And one thing was uh, very common, and that was that most of these people were ethnic minority groups. And I mm. saw a lot of diabetes in South Asians and other ethnic minority groups um, in comparison to, you know, American white populations. And so it made me really think about, you know, there, why are there so many more people with this problem, especially Asians who aren't very obese? It's not the same type of diabetes that you see in other groups that are, you know, it's mostly felt to be a disease of obesity. And, um, and that's not the same phenotype that you see in, in Asians. And so that really helped me kind of crystallize an idea of like, I really want to study why there's so much diabetes because diabetes seems to be the crux of the problem for so much heart disease in our community. And both my grandfather's with diabetes, my aunt has very significant diabetes. It just made me really want to like dig deeper. And um, knowing this area, there, there, is, there are many, many studies from around the world that, that show that South Asians compared to Europeans, compared to people in Singapore who are not South Asians, there's just a lot more diabetes and heart disease in, in South Asian populations. And so we have a lot of these cross-sectional data. That means like one snapshot in time, but nothing longitudinal looking at what mm. happens to people over time and what ends up, um, you know, being the way to really study risk factors is to look over time at what factors at time A actually end up predicting those who will end up having diabetes develop later in life at time B. And so those types of studies just were not being done for whatever mm. reason. And I found that to be a really important gap and an opportunity to, you know, help and, and understand this better. Have you been able to distinguish between those South Asians who have immigrated to the United States and those perhaps who have now um, been here for, for years and perhaps uh, undergone the uh, environment of the United States in their sort of development or longitudinal aspects of some of these diseases? That's a great question. So, so we have a cohort called uh, the MASALA study. It stands for Mediators of Atherosclerosis in South Asians Living in America. By the way, who, who would not love that uh, acronym, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it came to me as like an early morning in the shower <laughs> idea. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So, so what we've done is we've sampled um, a total of 1,164 South Asians living in the greater Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and the greater Chicago area. And we've mm. been following this cohort now. For, it's going to be 10 years. And um, we selected people to be in the study based on being South Asian, so having at least three grandparents who were born in any of the South Asian countries, and uh, that they had to be between age 40 and 84 and not already have heart disease because we're looking at what causes heart disease. Right. Um, and so given the population, the immigration statistics in the U.S., 98% of the people in the study are immigrants. So we can't look at second generation or even children of second generation because we just don't have that, the numbers in that age group. So right. we are very interested now in actually enrolling the adult children of the people in our cohort to look at the intergenerational effects. Well, thinking about those um, who are in the Masala study, or even in general, the work that you've done that's been so important, as well as the body of work that's out there for um, some of these individuals, 
now thinking about what you've seen or what's out there in the literature, um, what are in some ways uh, the risks that are involved for some of these individuals or populations um, in general? Yeah, and so um, we found that um, South Asians tend to store fat in all of the wrong places. So even becoming just slightly overweight where your BMI may still be in a low area, like a BMI of 21 or 22 or 23, which is low, normal, um, there still may be fat being stored in the liver or around the abdominal organs or even in the muscle, which can set you up for early diabetes. And so that's kind of critical because when you look back at the old studies from India, when they looked at rural populations in India in the 90s, um, and they looked at urban populations, there was very little diabetes in India, almost yeah. none in the rural populations, and maybe, you know, 6%, 7% in urban populations. So even just moving from, you know, a rural area where there's a lot more physical activity, a lot less easy calories and pe what people are consuming, to uh, urban Indian areas, there was a steep gradient of having more diabetes just with change in lifestyle. So, yeah. um, and, and then we've you know, been able to see that that gradient gets carried over as people immigrate to other Western countries. But now I, I've got to say, this is what's really striking is we've been able to compare our masala study data with concurrent studies that are happening in India and in Pakistan and the rate, the prevalence of diabetes in India is now higher than the prevalence mm. of diabetes in Indians or in South Asians living in the United States. So we've done mm. a direct comparison. And, and that is like, a, that is unprecedented. We have never seen that in other, in other countries. It's always been, you know, when you immigrate from your South Asian country to a Western right. country, your risk goes up because you get, get slightly more obese or more sedentary. Now we're seeing a reversal with actually rates in India being higher yeah. than what we are seeing here. And that's frightening in terms of the epidemic of, you know, diabetes that is happening and going to be worse in the next few generations. And is this parallel with other immigrant communities, what you're seeing? Or is no, this unique to the, unique. the South Asian yeah, subcontinent? It's, it's absolutely unique. So like Latinos, where this has been studied in terms of Mexican immigrants, the longer you stay, the second generations, the third generations have higher and higher and higher obesity, diabetes, heart disease risk than the people who immigrated, than the people back home. And mm -hmm. so same thing with Japanese, uh, the immigration, you know, as you stay longer, your risk goes up. But what yeah. we're seeing is, at least in our first generation immigrants in this age group, is that um, people are learning how to maybe manage their risk or doing a little bit more um, than people, you know, from the, the native areas. And so that's why the risk, the prevalence of diabetes seems to be higher yeah. in, in India now than compared to the Indians living here. Yeah. Which means that hopefully there are some strategies that uh, <laughs> folks are employing here that yeah. seem like they are activating. Are there now in some ways some uh, data to highlight what some of these strategies might be for, the, for yeah. these individuals or populations that are now good messaging for not yeah. only those who are of that age, but perhaps the, as the population ages, the yeah. uh, kids and their grandkids who might be taking care of them. Yeah, so diet, exercise, um, stress reduction, sleep, um, there's so many modifiable risk factors that 
can help, you know, delay or even prevent diabetes. And as I mentioned, yoga being one of the native forms of exercise in our community has been shown. And so there is, you know, uptake of yoga in the communities now that it's being offered more widely, it's a little bit easier to do. And even, you know, on online, you can do um, yoga classes. Um, I think there's been some improvements in diet. We definitely comparing just the number of vegetables per day that uh, people in our study here in the U.S. eat compared to Indians in a, in a you know, yeah. study. We're uh, on the average of four to five vegetables per day here compared to two to three uh, in India wow. now, right now. So you can see that there's an improvement in diet quality. There's um, probably uh, an improvement in some areas of exercise, not as much. I mean, in our study, we did see that compared to other U.S. ethnic groups, um, the South Asians had the lowest uh, amount of exercise. So there's mm. a lot of room for improvement here. Sure. We think that the diet changes maybe, you know, one good uh, piece of news that we can, we can actually adopt healthy changes in our diet. My guest today is Dr. Alka Kaneya on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we're going to talk a little bit about what some of her bottom line messages are for our community and what some of her future work is all about. So stay tuned. Rishi Rich. What's up? This is Rishi Rich, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. So welcome back. Uh, this is Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and my guest today is Dr. Alka Kaneya. Um, Alka, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to share a little bit more about your ongoing work and what are the next stages now for your research and thinking about risk uh, for uh, South Asians in our community. So right now, we're hopeful to have uh, more funding in Masala to expand our population to include more Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Right now, 85% of our Masala study is Asian Indians, which is great, but we really can't tell if there are differences in, you know, um, both, you know, uh, cultural uh, uh, risk factors as well as health risk factors. So we are trying to expand and it looks like we may be able to do that starting next year. Um, mm -hmm. We've also partnered with a really large uh, group of Asian Americans to start something called the CARE Registry. Um, and that is a registry to help people who are Asian American, Pacific Islander, so from any of the 23 countries that represent uh, Asia, to be in the registry to say that they would like to be contacted in the future for any research that may be looking for new participants. And I think this is really a good opportunity for Asian Americans to get involved in research because only about 1% of NIH dollars goes towards any type of research in Asian Americans. Wow. So it'd be really great to have your listeners, um, their communities, their parents um, sign up. It's just go find uh, Asian Care Registry. It's the first link that comes up. You know, more and more Indians are in communities that are not necessarily urban, mm -hmm. um, that are, uh, you know, more diverse in their socioeconomics or their demographics throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. um, is there a difference perhaps for those Indians who do live in rural areas as opposed to urban areas that you've found? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have real great data to answer that because uh, we, you know, sample people around the nine counties of the Bay Area and Chicago, and they're mostly sure. urban or suburban, so we don't have a whole lot of rural communities. Right. But, um, but I think that's a really great question. I can tell you that there are, you know, multi-generational households in the more rural areas. Yeah. I'm working with people in the Central Valley of California right now who are dealing with the COVID epidemic. And it has hit the Central Valley quite hard. And so, yeah, there are different, you know, there are different areas of concern uh, in in multi-generational families, but there are also um, areas of support. What we found in some of the qualitative research we've done is that older uh, South Asian immigrants find that their younger, you know, the young adult children they have are the most influential on their mm. behaviors. And so if their children are telling them you need to eat more fresh, green, leafy vegetables and fresh fruits and vegetables and more whole grains and you can't eat that, you know, snack or fried uh, Indian uh, matai, they're about they're going to listen to their kids. They're not going to necessarily listen to their doctor or to the TV or to the newspaper. But, you know, having multi-generational influence on um, behaviors is really, really quite potent. Well, so that that leads into a, a great topic, which is um, for those multi generational families or those who have parents or grandparents who fit into uh, a risky category, or for those uh, younger South Asians. What are kind of some bottom line imperatives that we really should engage with now uh, yeah. to be more preventive in our health and, and lifestyle? Yeah, good question. I mean, heart disease and diabetes don't start when you're older. They start when you're very young. I mean, uh, they've done studies of um, teenagers who have had accidental deaths, and they've looked in their heart, and they actually, you can see plaques in the arteries in teenage years. So what you do as a young adult or a teenager really does matter in terms of your long-term health and cognition. More and more, we're finding that it's not only in your heart, it's your brain. So in yeah. terms of having a, a long life without dementia, Alzheimer's, it's really important to start working and thinking about these things early. So you can't just say, I'll do whatever I do. And then when I'm 50 years old, I'll start getting worried about this because most South Asians, I mean, develop heart disease and diabetes 10 years younger mm. than any other ethnic group. So the average age is around 40s. And yeah. that's that's unheard of. So being South Asian, the bottom line is know that you're probably at higher risk than most other groups. Take it a little more seriously. Start working on your lifestyle early and keep going and influence your older relatives to adopt some of the healthy behaviors and what you're doing in terms of physical activity, eating a healthier diet, and also, you know, stress and managing your stress with, um, you know, other good activities that we've talked about, yoga, meditation, et cetera. Okay, so you've had a wealth of experience in messaging to not only the South Asian community, but to your patients at large, and um, thinking about, of course, the dramatic risks that uh, start early, as well as those that you now you now see in the um, adult and aging population. Given all of this, uh, are there things that make you optimistic about what uh, the health of the South Asian community is going to look like, let's say, in five or 10 years? 
Yeah, I, I do think that there is more awareness. And I think it's from campaigns like, you know, this what you're doing and um, just more media coverage. Um, we just uh, got good news that the House of Representatives passed a bill that is now going to go to the Senate, but it's a South Asian health awareness bill to give more money through the CDC to public health departments to help raise awareness of heart disease. Right. factor. So I think, you know, these kind of messages are starting to get out. And I think every South Asian knows somebody who's affected by diabetes or heart disease. And knowing that there are ways to prevent that is really powerful. So I am very, very optimistic. I think that, you know, the data that I shared with you about our rates of diabetes being lower than the rates in India now, that's uh, an area of optimism that we are going to, you know, be healthier and better off. And hopefully we can disseminate that knowledge to uh, our friends and family back home as well. And it leaves us very optimistic, particularly when we have great healthcare leaders like you. Um, Alka, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. No, it was really fun to be here. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Really like that. Yo, what's up? This is DMC and you can catch me on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Peace.